Welcome to the Real Estate Guys radio program. Happy holidays. Your gift today is a great, great guest. It's you. It's Ask the Guys your questions, our answers today on this holiday edition of the Real Estate Guys radio program. Are you achieving everything you want in life? What if there was a time-tested way to ensure that 2015 is your best year yet? The most successful people in life set goals and keep themselves accountable. But how? The good news is that it's not rocket science. You too can learn the skills and unleash the motivation that will create success in your life. And now is the time. Hi, this is Robert Helms, and I'd like to personally invite you to attend Creating Your Future, the 2015 Goals Retreat, January 9th to 11th in beautiful San Diego, California. This unique weekend event has been called phenomenal, inspirational, and life-changing by the hundreds of people that have attended. Find out more at realestateguysradio.com and click on events or call 888-489-7723, extension 18. Get your life back on track, physically, spiritually, and financially. Attend the 2015 Goals Retreat on the second weekend of the new year. Click events at realestateguysradio.com. This is no dress rehearsal. Live the life you were meant to. Visit realestateguysradio.com or call 888-489-7723, extension 18, today. Welcome to the Real Estate Guys radio program. I'm your host, Robert Helms. As the year draws to an end, it's time to empty our mailbox. It is Ask the Guys, and now let's meet the guys. First, our co-host, financial strategist, Russell Gray. Ho, 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 Robert. Also with us this week, the man we call the godfather of real estate. He's been investing in seven different decades, Bob Helms. Hey, it's always fun to be here with you guys. It's especially fun at Christmas. It is indeed. Merry Christmas to you gentlemen and to all the listeners out there. Uh, may this be a joyous uh, holiday season with you and your family. Uh, I don't know what you are doing this time of the year, but we are going through our mailbox and cleaning out our junk, and we found a lot of really great nuggets in here. And the reality is we get so many wonderful questions from listeners and uh, just big apologies that we can't answer them all one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. But what we do is we go through the questions, and, and if there's something in there that we think the broader audience would find value in, then we bring that question up on Ask the Guys, and that's what we're going to do today. Just uh, two quick disclaimers. We are not CPAs or attorneys. We do not give advice. We give ideas and information. So there you go. To get your question to the Real Estate Guys, go to our website at realestateguysradio.com and click on the button that says, very creatively, Ask the Guys. Here's our first question. It comes from Alfredo in Hayward, California. He says, I took title to a property with owner financing and I've been living in it for the past five years. I have title, but there is no recorded loan on my credit report. Can I now get a loan as a first-time buyer to buy a property through a traditional bank? I have 30% down and a 780 credit score. I would also like to borrow on my 401k. Is there any advantage to doing that? How much can I borrow on my 401k and how does the bank look at that? Does that count against the amount I can borrow? All right. Well, first of all, Alfredo, congratulations on being able to uh, be in a property with owner financing. It's a great tool and also saving up enough money to buy another house. You're on a good path. Let's first talk about the difference between where loans show up. You're mentioning that because it's an owner finance situation that that loan is not reported to a credit bureau. It doesn't show on your credit score. That can be a blessing and a curse. The blessing is it doesn't count against you in a traditional mortgage manner. We were talking mortgages a few weeks back. It's not one of your Freddie Fannie loans. The negative is that all those great on-time payments you're making aren't helping your credit score any. So we're not saying one's better than the other, but just understand it's not in your credit score. 
That, however, does not mean that the loan doesn't exist. Okay, so Alfredo, just because this property isn't on your credit report, it doesn't mean that it doesn't show up somewhere. And the most important place really that it needs to show up is on your disclosures. Because when you are representing to the bank saying, hey, Mr. Banker, I'm a first time home buyer, they're gonna ask you, do you own a home? And you're gonna say, no. And then you're gonna say that you haven't owned a home in the X number of years. Both of those statements are false. So when you make false statements on a loan application, especially if it's a government loan, there's a word for that. It's called fraud. Fraud, <laughs> that's called, the yeah, word. Fraud, fraud misrepresentation. Then you're probably not going to want to do that. Now, I'm not saying you couldn't find a loan broker that would help you do that. Uh, and they would search everything to make sure there wouldn't be any evidence that you actually already own this home. Well, in fact, you should check with a mortgage professional because, again, our opinion is always take the higher road, always be transparent. You own a house. So you can't qualify as a first-time home buyer. However, there are some first-time buyer programs we've seen over the years that don't technically mean you never owned a home. They mean you don't have particular parameters like not owning in the last three years, not having a loan in your name, et cetera, et cetera. If this is a private carry done in the name of an entity and not you, I mean, maybe there's a way that an ethical loan professional can find a loan. But I'm also here to say that first-time buyer loans, why good, aren't the only financing out there. No, well, I mean, obviously he's already figured out how to buy a house with owner financing. It may be possible he could refinance that home with a first-time buyer program. You'd have to just look at the specific underwriting guidelines. I haven't been in the mortgage business in a long time, so I don't know what all the current rules are. So your first order of business is to check with a mortgage pro and then just tell them the truth, right? Because you don't want to be signing federal documents. If you do a Fannie Freddie, any type of government-backed loan, FHA, if you do any of those kind of loans, you're signing under penalty of perjury, it's a felony to lie on a loan application. And there's big dollars involved. So even though it's perfectly innocent, the chances of getting caught are small in terms of if you always make the payment. But if that loan were to get audited for whatever reason, and they come back and find it, you're in trouble. And to me, whatever minimal amount you're going to be saving, probably not worth it. So to me, that's part A of the question. There's another aspect too, I think, Alfredo, and it's this. First of all, you've got a high FICO score. You've accrued good down payment. You've obviously had a good payment history with this guy. Don't ignore that. Use it. You can get a letter from the person who sold you the property, carried back the loan, talking about your record. There's no reason he wouldn't be willing to do that. So if that's appropriate, do that. All right, so part two of the question is borrowing against your retirement, against your 401k. Now, again, we're not lenders and we're not attorneys and we're not CPAs, but we have some thoughts. It's actually pretty straightforward. Most, and I'm not going to say all, it depends on your particular plan and your administrator, so that's who you want to check with, will allow you to borrow out some of the money. Not all of it, uh, no matter how much there is. Used to be the limit was 50000 It may still be 50000 uh, you can take the $50,000 out and then you have to make interest payments back and they'll just deduct that straight from your paycheck. So it could be nice because if the note rate is higher than whatever the growth rate is on whatever it's currently invested in or it's more secure and you'd rather put more money back in your retirement account, that would be a reason to do that. The other thing you need to be concerned about is if you were to leave employment for whatever reason, then you would have to be uh, looking at whether or not that would be considered a withdrawal and you'd have to pay it back. If you don't pay it back, then it's considered a distribution with all the penalties and taxes. So you want to check with both your plan administrator and your tax advisor. And the other issue is make sure you understand what happens if for some reason you end up defaulting. Because if you default on the loan, then that could potentially be a problem as well. But there's nothing wrong with pulling money out in 
terms of the effect on your balance sheet, it's still going to show up your 401k, at least back in the old days, it shows up as a as an asset. And the asset is the loan from you and uh, may or may not show up on your balance sheet as a liability. So work with your mortgage professional to understand what the current underwriting guidelines are for the specific program that you're applying for and how they would look at that. Make sure you've done all the homework, talking to your plan administrator, talking to your tax advisor, and talking to your loan person before you pull the trigger on anything so that you understand what all the ins and outs are. If you didn't hear the show a few weeks back with Graham Parham and Michael Becker on lending, you'll hear some nuggets in there about non-liquid and liquid funds and reserves and all those numbers. Uh, the short of it is, though, you're in a great position. You've got good credit, you've got some money, and you're going to be able to affect a great transaction or two here. One other thing about your self-directed accounts, be that a 401k, an IRA, whatever it is that you have, they are ideal for using if you're doing investment of other properties. There are some limitations about using your 401k on a property that you're going to live in and draw direct benefit from. But there are no limitations, as far as I know, as far as putting it into an investment account. Your IRA custodian can tell you what the rules are. All right, good stuff. It's Ask the Guys today. Your questions are answers. This next question comes from Thomas in Charlotte, North Carolina. He says, I discovered your podcast recently. I've now listened to two editions each day this week. Great info. I don't know how I've made it this far without knowing about your great podcast. Oh, go on. Uh, that being said, I'd like to know how to determine what level of success I'm having with a rental property. How do I determine cash on cash return when a primary residence is converted to a rental and when that mortgage was refinanced with cash out to pay off high interest rate debt? Or what metric can I use to know if I'm really wise to keep the property as a rental? So Thomas goes on to give us some details about his mortgage and the interest rate and so forth. And, and basically, the house rents for $2,000. He pays 10% to his manager and he's had the same occupant for two years. He's got some other expenses, pool expense and so forth, but his net cash flow is $200 a month. So his big question is, how do I determine if $2,400 net cash flow plus principal reduction of mortgage is a reasonable return? Yeah, and this this again is just understanding how just to do the simple math. This is, uh, you know, high school or maybe even junior high school algebra. And that's about as far as uh, all the math that I ever took in my life. That's really all I've ever needed is just a little bit of algebra, knowing how to solve for a variable. In this case, you're trying to figure out what my return on investment is. You just have to know what pieces you're going to put in. And so at the end of the day, when you've done all of these different transactions that you described, Thomas, uh, you're going to have a certain amount of equity in the property and you're going to have a certain amount of cash in the property. If when you started all of this and you did all the refinances, you ended up with all your cash back out, meaning that you don't have any cash in the property, then your cash on cash return is infinite. infinite. We like that's infinite. That's an easy calculation because it's basically free money to you on a cash on cash basis. So really now you're saying, okay, I've got equity left in the property or if I have cash left in the property, those are two different calculations and they're super simple. The only number that you've given us is $200 a month net, which is $2,400 a year. You said assuming no unusual expenses, so I don't know if that takes into account set-asides or not. We're just going to assume that that's your bottom, bottom line, right? $200 a month, $2,400. If you have cash in the property, whatever amount of cash you have in there, you divide that into your $2,400. That's your cash on cash return. So if you had $24,000 in the property, you would divide $2,400 by $24,000 and you would get 0.1 or 10%. That's a 10% cash on cash return. Okay, so that's great. And then if you were trying to figure out the equity, let's say you have $48,000 equity in the property. 
you would take your $2,400 and divide that by your 48,000 and you would get 0.5, which would be 5%. So your cash on equity would be 5%. Now it's a return. Here's a couple terms I want to make sure. I hear people say this all the time. It's a pet peeve of mine. People go, what's my return? And then they calculate their unrealized capital gain. They say, oh, I bought my stock at a dollar and now it's worth a dollar fifty. I have a 50% return. No, you don't. You have a 50% growth and you don't have any return because it's not cash. Return is return of cash. Right. So I put cash in, I get cash out. That's a return. Everything else is just a growth rate. So I call that in real estate the equity growth rate. But if I'm getting cash out on my equity, that's my cash on equity return, which I'm interested in because I might want to move that equity someplace else where I could get a higher return well, on it. Well, this is the heart of his question. He says, how, how do I know if I'm doing well? What's, is my, can I measure my success as an investor? And so the answer is, it's compared to what? You calculate what your return is here, and then you compare it to what else you could do with the money, but not just the money, the time, the resources, the energy, all of that. It's a zero-sum game that we're in. Every minute we decide to spend or invest somewhere is a minute we can't spend or invest somewhere else. The same is true for every dollar. So people get into a property, and the easy thing to do is just to keep it. We suggest that every so often, every few years, every year, every quarter, if you're crazy, you analyze your portfolio and decide, knowing what I now know, would I make this investment again? Or are there better opportunities out there to do something else? There's not a magic formula or a metric. It's just a compared to what? Well, I think the other key word, though, is optimal. A lot of people are always looking for maximum. We wrote about this in Equity Happens. We said, you know, opt to be a miser, but not to the max. And that is, you know, when you're dealing with people, you don't necessarily want to get the lowest possible price. You want to have the best optimal relationship. You want the person motivated to do the best job for you. That means you're going to pay them, right? I don't want the cheapest brain surgeon. I don't want the cheapest lawyer. I probably don't want the cheapest insurance. So by the same token, you know, you don't want to try to always get the highest absolute rent or the highest absolute return um, because the, the challenge with that is you're bouncing around all the time, always trying to find out what's best in a field of a lot of moving targets. So I just, man, just be within spitting distance, right? Get a good deal. And to me, a good deal in real estate is one that makes sense by the numbers that you can control long term because whatever little bit you squeeze out here or there, an extra percent or two, all the gyrations, you'd be better off going and raising money or going and looking for the next big deal. And so don't get too hung up on that. But to, to your point, Robert, do make sure you look at it from time to time and understand that every day that you're building equity in a property, your cash on equity return and your equity growth rate are going down because you're losing leverage. You get excited because you have the equity there and you should be excited. Equity happens and that's a great thing. We love it. But the problem is it diminishes. It starts working harder. The fatter your equity gets, the lazier it is. Fat equity is a sign of laziness, right? You, you want lean equity and you move that equity on to the next place where it can perform better. And then there's going to be based on what types of loans are available or what's going on in the tax code or what's going on in the market, how you choose to access that equity and move it into the next deal and what you choose to, will really depend on what you're trying to accomplish whether it's cash flow more equity growth accumulating more doors or more units of value whatever that may be hedging asset protection or optimal maximum growth whatever you're going for and then besides the absolute numbers ask yourself is this a property I still want to own is this does this work for me one of the things he mentioned in his uh, long email was the fact that the neighborhood values have gone down 
because a lot of people have been selling and that can happen in an area. So does that mean there's unrealized value there as those properties sell and the market's strong overall? Or does it mean it's time to get out? Those are the questions that no spreadsheet can answer. So you do the math and the math tells you what direction to go in. And then it's a gut check of all the other things on my horizon. A big part of what happens to you as an investor is your personal evolution as a real estate investor. You get better. There are deals that we did five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago that we laugh at today, but we weren't the same people 20 years ago as we are today. Some of them laugh at us. That's right, and that too. <laughs> so we wanna learn as we earn. We wanna continue to get better at what we're doing. When you started out with this property, it was probably great. Now that you're looking at the compared to what, you might say, well, hey, I did okay, but I, I could do better. And that's really the essence of real estate investing. Today, it's Ask the Guys. Your questions are answers. We've got lots more when we come back. You're tuned to the Real Estate Guys radio program. I'm your host, Robert Helms. Live nationwide, you're listening to The Real Estate Guys. Find out more at realestateguysradio.com. If you've been listening to The Real Estate Guys for a while, then you've heard about the legendary Investor Summit. Simply put, it's the highest level event we do, and the content, faculty, and attendees are amazing. If you're serious about taking your real estate investment to the next level, consider joining us. You'll spend an entire week with like-minded investors, world-class educators, and real-world professionals. And you'll have a blast. Join Peter Schiff, Ken McElroy, Tom Hopkins, and the Real Estate Guys for the 13th Annual Investor Summit at Sea. It all begins March 5th, 2015 in Miami, Florida. Visit realestateguysradio.com and click the tab that says Summit to learn more and reserve your spot. The event is more than 80% sold out, so make plans to join us. Go to realestateguysradio.com and click Summit and spend a week with the Real Estate Guys and an all-star faculty on the 13th Annual Investor Summit. Don't miss the boat. Memphis, Tennessee is a market that delivers in more ways than one. As home to FedEx, Memphis is one of the largest distribution hubs in the world. That means working class jobs. No wonder Memphis is one of the best cash flow real estate markets in America. And the guy in Memphis who can deliver great affordable cash flow turnkey properties is Terry Kerr at Mid-South Home Buyers. Contact Terry through the resource section at realestateguysradio.com. And be sure to order Terry's tips for turnkey rental property investing. It's free. Just send your request to turnkey at realestateguysradio.com. That's turnkey at realestateguysradio.com. Hello, this is Dave Lindiger, co-founder of Remax International. You're listening to The Real Estate Guys. Welcome back to The Real Estate Guys radio program. It's the holiday edition of Ask the Guys. Your questions are answers. If you have a question for The Real Estate Guys, go to the website at realestateguysradio.com and click on Ask the Guys. We'd love to hear what's on your mind and when we can to help. This next question comes from Tom in Dallas, Texas. He says, in a recent email regarding a new podcast, you mentioned it might be time to capture some of the equity gained in the recent run-up due to the fact that the equity could shrink. Doesn't that go against the conservative advice you typically offer? I know you also mentioned that cash flow rules must still apply, but wouldn't it be dangerous to take out additional leverage if you believe that the equity is going to shrink? Seems like that would create a greater danger of hurting your debt coverage ratio. All right, well, Tom, that is an insightful question, and boy, 
do we have a long answer? Well, first, let me give you the short answer. The short answer is the cash flow must absolutely positively cover any leverage, right? That's what's risky. So if you have uh, topped out your rents and the market is trending down in terms of rental income and you've maxed out maybe with an adjustable rate loan and you have the risk of upward pressure on your uh payments and you with a little bit of unexpected expense or a decline in the marketplace in terms of rental income could find yourself at negative cash flow that you can't sustain from some other source to get you over the hump, then you're in trouble. So the short answer is the cash flow has got to conservatively cover any leverage. Yeah. And a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about stocks versus real estate. And we kind of covered this idea as we have in many past episodes about protecting equity. And, and we're not saying, oh no, the market's going to go down. We're not saying that. What we're saying is it's prudent as a real estate investor to know where you are. And protecting equity, we think, is a strategy that rarely makes you worse off and can save your bacon. Well, I mean, that's the thing. The equity is going to shrink whether you take it or someone else takes it. If I have a choice between Mr. Market taking it or me taking it, I'm taking it. Right, let's talk big picture on this because this is critical to understand. The only time it really matters what a property is worth is when you go to sell it or finance it. The rest of the time, it does not matter. And people, this is one of the biggest mistakes we see investors make. People get all caught up in the price of their house. You probably know someone who's lived in a house for 20 years. That house has fluctuated in value a ton, probably worth a lot more today than it was 20 years ago, but it probably also went down at some point because that's what real estate does. Real estate cycles go up, they go down, and it's all geographic and it's all market-based and product-type-based. So during that time, they could have wigged out every time the house went down in value and celebrated every time it went up in value, but the reality is during that 20 years, they had a consistent payment if they had a fixed mortgage and they had a place to live. That's what matters. With a rental property, if your numbers work, if you gear the financial performance correctly, you're going to have money coming in. Tenant's going to pay you money. That's coming in regardless of the underlying value. So rather than get all caught up in what is the value of the property, we need to focus on what's the end game. Why are we acquiring real estate? We're trying to acquire more doors and more streams of income. Those streams of income will be affected positive and negative by all kinds of things that are happening in competitive market and economics, all of that. But the big picture is we want to own more real estate over time that goes up in value and in cash flow. Those things aren't always happening at the same time, but we want to pay attention to that. So that was my quick aside. Well, I mean, let's take a page out of Kenny McElroy's playbook, right? So Kenny goes out and he takes equity, cash, puts it into a property. That's a down payment, purchase equity. Then he manages the property for a couple of years, drives up the cash flow, which of course drives up the equity because the equity is a byproduct of the cash flow. The more cash flow, the more equity. And then he goes to refinance it and he refinances it, he's able to get a bigger loan because he's got more income. That's the debt coverage ratio that Tom is talking about. And then if he can increase the loan size and get cash out equal to the amount of down payment that he put in, and he still has positive cash flow when he gets out, then what he effectively has done is he's removed all of his purchase equity, got his cash back out off the table, he still has positive cash flow, he still has all the upside of the property over time, and he's got no money at risk. Well, this is the core of this, right? When you say, well, isn't it risky? If you left that money exposed, that would be more risky. I would say that Kenny's plan there is completely conservative, but it was based on him adding the value. And it was based on the ability of a lender 
to factor in everything like debt coverage ratio. A commercial lender, in Kenny's case, with three or four or 500 apartments, is not going to make a loan unless there is property CR. Right. Well, Kenny's skill set allows him to compress time frames, right? If you buy a property today, it might take you 10 years of just market appreciation in rents, uh, in order to get to a point where you have enough equity to do what Kenny does in two years because he forces the issue. He buys it right. He buys it where it's a little underperforming and he goes in and he aggressively, strategically fixes it up and he compresses time frames. But at the end of the day, the point is he gets the equity out of the property and back either in his own checkbook or gives it back to his investors who immediately give it back to him and say, hey, let's do that again. Right. right? But the idea is he continues to go out there and accumulate more and more and more and more. Why? Because the cost of those loans is less than the income on the new properties he buys. That's a concept called arbitrage. If I can borrow the money out of property A and it costs me 5% and I can go invest it in property B, which is paying 10% cash on cash, then I've just gotten 5% free money on the spread as long as the first property covers the new loan. And the premise from the top of the answer is that the, the new loan always has to be covered conservatively by the cash flow. But if the cash flow is there, so will the equity be, and the lender will be willing to make that loan if it's at least two years stabilized. Right. So the risk isn't losing equity. The risk is being exposed to the marketplace. And our idea of pulling the equity out protects you. Because back to my analogy of, hey, if it doesn't matter what the price is. If you were able to borrow money out, get this, say, cash out refi or whatever we're talking about, but you get the money out and you have it working for you, the fact that the market takes away the equity doesn't really matter because you have the money. Right. Now you have to be able to sustain the cash flow, but at some point, if there's a problem in the durability of the income, say that rents have gone down in the area, now your partner, the bank, who you now owe more than the property's worth, is going to be on your side to help cure that issue. It's less risky. So let's say all you did was you threw those proceeds in a bank account if you felt comfortable with that or you bought a pile of gold, a bunch of gold bars, right? And you're sitting there and then all of a sudden the market pulls back and real estate's upside down. Now, if you don't need to sell, doesn't matter. Just keep making that payment and pretty soon the, house, the property will be paid off and it'll all be good. Keep making that payment from the tenant's income. From the tenant's income. If for some reason you had to sell, you would be upside down. You would have to bring cash to the party. Well, you have the cash because you were smart enough to take it when it was still there. If you had left the equity in the property, you wouldn't have the cash and it would still be upside down because the market value is gonna be what the market value is. Maybe your loan wouldn't be quite as big, but it doesn't matter. And you're paying interest on that equity you took out, but you're also getting to use it. Well, hopefully you're making money on the equity you took out, right? You are more than what it costs for to borrow. That's the arbitrage thing I was talking about earlier. But here's the thing you need to understand, Tom, and everybody listening, is that the people who propagate this notion that having a bunch of equity inside a property are the people that are holding the paper against it. It's protective equity. The bank wants you to have equity. The bank tells you that it's conservative to have more equity in the property. It's conservative for them. Yeah. It's not conservative for you. What's conservative is for you to get your equity out of the property when it's there, because if the market takes it, you don't have it anyway, at least if you take it and put it someplace safe. If you think the market is going to pull down from today's levels, get the equity out, hedge it by putting it someplace far more conservative than in another property where the market could take it away there. But if you can accumulate other streams of income, and if you have a bunch of properties that are upside down that have enough income that you can hold them for 10, 15, 20 years or all the way till they're paid off, then better to have more properties. Well, I'm back to conservative. The two most conservative possible ways to own property are with zero equity in them 
because then there's nothing to take. You've pulled it out and you're putting it to work or with 100% equity and you don't have a loan or any other encumbrance. So we're big believers in leverage and using leverage, but there's also times where we own property free and clear. We have free and clear property right now. That's a safety mechanism, just like those gold bars. A tract of land can be just as attractive when it comes to holding something that's real that's not encumbered. Look at the bank's viewpoint when they're making this loan. A term that we talk about all the time, some of us don't understand very well, is debt coverage ratio. What is the bank looking for when they set a debt coverage ratio? First of all, it's not a law. It's a practice. The bank decides that they determine what that ratio will be. How do they determine that? Simply by assessing what they think the risk is with this loan at this time. So debt coverage ratios vary all the time, but the bank wants you to have that. Why? So that if the market does go south, you have excess funds with which to pay their loan. And no investor left behind. What is debt coverage ratio? It simply means that the property takes in more than enough to cover this debt service. So it's just very simple math. If you had a property that uh, had a thousand dollar principal interest taxes and insurance payment and the lender wanted a 25% or 1.25 debt coverage ratio, it would have to be bringing in $1,250. Make sense? So 1,000 times 1.25 is 1,250. Right. And what's that extra margin about? Safety. Safety. Stuff happens. Tenants move out. Lightning strikes. Stuff goes on. And the lender knows that to be conservative, they want to make sure you have some room as a landlord. And that's a good thing. They're on your side because of that. You know, we talked a little bit about this when we did the show with the Graham and, and Michael a few weeks back about lending. But the lender is not your enemy. The lender, even though it might seem like they're trying to look for every way to say no to you and 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 sniff out every possible thing in your past, that they're re they want to get the money to work. They're like your parents. <laughs> they're trying to be good stewards because they haven't always been. So, all right. Well, I think we've beat that dead horse. That's a good question, Tom. Uh, really, it's, it's more than doing the math. It's getting your mind around what is conservative. It's Ask the Guys today. Your questions, our answers. When we come back, we're going to flip that around. We've got a question. You can answer it on today's Real Estate Trivia Question. You're tuned of the Real Estate Guys radio program. I'm your host, Robert Helms. Real estate investment advice right in your mailbox. Sign up for the free Real Estate Guys newsletter at realestateguysradio.com. Are you still sitting on the sidelines trying to figure out when and where you're going to buy those investment properties? Well, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Atlanta, Georgia is still on sale, but you better act fast because the deals are almost gone. Hey, this is Ken Corsini with Georgia Residential Partners, and I want you to know that there may not be a better investing opportunity than Atlanta right now. Listed as one of the fastest growing markets in the country, both in terms of jobs and population, Forbes predicts 26% appreciation over the next three years. At Georgia Residential Partners, we sell turnkey, cash-flowing investment properties. We also sell wholesale properties at insane discounts. We're launching a new home construction product this summer as well. And if you're still nervous about stepping out into another market, I will personally partner with you on a small portfolio of homes, if that's what it takes. Don't wait any longer. Check us out at gainvesting.com or call our office at 770-924-5450. We look forward to hearing from you. Hi, this is Patrick Donahoe of Paradigm Life. Over the last few years, I've had the privilege of sharing the services of Paradigm Life with you loyal Real Estate Guys Radio listeners through our website, www.beerbank.com, and also on the annual Investor Summit at Sea. 
Subsequently, we have seen a variety of financial situations across the socioeconomic spectrum and how everyone, regardless of their situation, would improve their financial lives by following the system we specialize in. As a result of this experience, we have created an online e-learning system so anyone without obligation can learn about the infinite banking concept. This free e-learning program is found on our website, www.beerbank.com. So check it out today. The website again is www.beerbank.com. Hi, this is Steve Forbes. You're listening to The Real Estate Guys. Have fun. You'll learn something. Welcome back to The Real Estate Guys radio program. Happy holidays to you and yours. It's Ask the Guys. Don't forget there's still room to join us for creating your future, the 2015 Goals Retreat. If you want to get crystal clear about not just your real estate, but the rest of your life, come out and join us in beautiful San Diego, California. Go to the website at realestateguysradio.com and click on events. You learn all about creating your future. Watch what other people who have attended have to say about it, then make your decision. It's Ask the Guys. Before we get back to your great questions, it's time for us to ask you a question. Real estate trivia is your chance to win a prize by knowing today's real estate trivia question. When you hear the question and think you know the answer or you want to take a guess, send it to us. to trivia at realestateguysradio.com. Trivia at realestateguysradio.com. Be sure to include your name and your mailing address so we can send you your prize if you're the winner. The prize, a copy of Josh and Lisa Lannan's great book, The Social Capitalist. That can be yours if you know today's real estate trivia question. Last week on the show, we were in the Dominican Republic and we asked this, where is the largest hotel in the Caribbean? Lots of people knew it's on Paradise Island in the Bahamas. The Atlantis Resort is the largest Caribbean hotel with just over 3,400 rooms. Here's our real estate trivia question for this week. In what country was the song Silent Night first sung? The Christmas classic Silent Night, what country was that song debuted? written in. Where did it start? Silent Night. If you think you know or you want to take a guess, send us your best guess to trivia at realestateguysradio.com. Trivia at realestateguysradio.com. Be sure to give us your mailing address because if you win, we're going to send you the social capitalist from Josh and Lisa Lannan. You can join the Lannans on next year's Investor Summit at Sea in March, and that would make a great last-minute holiday gift, I think, sending someone uh, on the summit. Go to our website at realestateguysradio.com. Click on Summit. You can see how you can hang out with Ken McElroy, Peter Schiff, Tom Hopkins, the real estate guys that are an amazing faculty and even more amazing group of folks that come with us, the people we call our summiteers. It's Ask the Guys. Your questions are answers. If you have a question for the real estate guys, click Ask the Guys at realestateguysradio.com. This comes from Shannon in Provo, Utah. She says, we own a couple of student houses in a college town and have previously just given a rental discount for our live-in manager. We're ready to now hire a former live-in manager who still lives in the area. We want her to manage check-ins and check-outs, take care of minor repairs and a few other things, probably amounting to about five hours a week over the course of a year. We'll take care of the landscaping and the repairs and the rent ourselves. In this case, would she be considered an employee or a contractor? All righty. So right out of the gate, we are not tax advisors, and this is a tax question. And we're not labor attorneys either. Yeah, but if you were to go to the uh, IRS website and look up the definition of an independent contractor, that's going to give you, I think there's nine points that uh, they need to qualify in. You know, whether or not you provide their tools and equipment, they provide similar services to other people, uh, how much direct supervision they operate under, 
um, and so on, and whether you tell them, you know, when to show up and when not to show up. So look at that list and ask yourself if you would be willing to go to tax court in an audit and defend your positioning. The next thing, and even the safer thing, is to go and invest a little bit of money with a tax attorney and ask them to give you an opinion letter based on exactly your set of circumstances. And then that way you have their errors and omissions insurance covering you. Uh, you have to understand they're going to be super, super conservative because of that. So if it's a gray area, they're always going to land on the side of the IRS. A lot of people think, oh, I go to my tax attorney, tax attorney's on my side. No, he's not. But he will tell you how to stay out of trouble because that's what he's expert at. You have to make a business decision if you want to push the envelope a little bit. What's it worth if you do and what's it worth if you don't? That's where you go to your CPA and say, what's it going to cost me if I do it this way? What's it going to cost me if I do it? That way, if you hire an employee, you're going to have payroll tax, you're going to have reporting requirements, you may have some insurance requirements. I have no idea under the new Obamacare what that's going to look like. This is only five hours. The other thing is, is does she have to declare the compensation of a free place to rent? On her tax return, it just opens up a can of worms. Sadly, that's just the way it is in these United States of America. But if you want to play by the rules, then you're going to have to invest some time and you can start cheaply by visiting the IRS website. And then, uh, and then if you decide to go the independent contractor route, make sure that you have an independent contractor agreement where you both acknowledge exactly the way it is, that you, the understanding between both the parties is where you're an independent contractor, Miss Property Manager, and these are your duties, and you are free to serve other people. Uh, you are doing this, you know, your whatever, all the things that are in the IRS thing, just make sure that you have that spelled out so that you can make your case that the understanding between the parties fits the description. Now, Bob, you've been in the situation where you've had both. You've had a contractor, third-party management company, and you've had employees that have worked managing properties. Yeah, and you know, it's an interesting thing. Let's start with what is a property manager. The function that you want to do here is definitely property management. Property management is the most important thing you can ever do as an investor because it determines whether this is going to work or not, whether you're going to do what we need to do to minimize vacancies, to maximize our income, etc. So how do you do it? There is no law that says you have to hire a property manager. You can be your own property manager. The question is, if you hire an employee and they're doing part of the job, are they a contractor or are they not? Let's avoid that for a second and say, suppose I decide to hire a professional property manager. That will have to be a licensed person. In most states, that will have to be a licensed real estate broker. And some states even have additional requirements beside that. So if you're hiring a arm's length professional, expect to hire a property manager. And clearly that person is probably not an employee, but again, you're going to want to check because it has to do with what duties they're doing and so forth. There are property management companies that also supply people like on-site managers who work for them, not for you. For example, in the state of California, if you have 16 units or more in your apartment, you must have, you're required to have an on-site manager. Are they the property manager? Not necessarily. They could be the employee of a property manager or the property manager at the very minimum would want to direct their activities, whether they work for him or work for you. Or you could be the employer 
and then that opens up that whole can of worms. You're going to want to update your insurance too, so make sure you visit with your insurance broker and probably your insurance attorney because if you do end up going down the employee route, you are going to be responsible for that employee's uh, behavior. So if they discriminate or somehow do something uh, then and you get sued, your coverage may exclude the coverage unless you have a specific rider called EPL. It's Employer Practices Liability. So just make sure you talk. In fact, you should go back into our archives and listen to the show we did with Randy Hess. He's an insurance attorney in California, and uh, he talked a lot about the different types of things uh, insurance-wise that uh, property owners need to look at. But EPL is one of those things you're going to want to take a look at if you end up with an employee. Now, for those of you who are not Shannon listening into this question, don't be alarmed by all of this. It's not to scare you away from hiring people. We have employees. We have independent contractors. We have subcontractors. It's all good. You just want to make sure that you know exactly where you stand and that your contractor or employee knows exactly where they stand and that you follow the rules. Right? And those rules vary between countries for sure, between states, between counties, between cities. Just make sure you're covered. There's sometimes there's additional types of licensing. I don't mean like a, a real estate license, but I mean like buying a local $35 a year employee license to have someone in your business. That's true in some states. So you just want to get uh, all your ducks in a row. All you have to know is who to ask and what to ask. It's very simple. So you're going to talk to your CPA. You're going to talk to your insurance broker, maybe your insurance attorney. Uh, and then you uh, are going to want to just make sure that you do what they tell you to do and you'll be fine. Our next question comes from Kevin in Seattle, Washington. Hey guys, I just recently picked up your podcast and I've really been enjoying it. I was wondering if there's a particular software or app that you use to manage your portfolio and if there are different ones you'd use for commercial versus residential, investment, income, etc. I was also curious if these tools satisfy your project management team communication needs or if there are other tools you use for that. Well, we have some incredible tools we use, and it won't take long to go through them. <laughs> it's pretty simple. The property managers are going to use whatever property management software they like. And we have different property managers that like different software. In fact, on the last Investor Summit, we had three property managers there, all of whom had different software, one of whom was considering making the jump to one of the software platforms the other had, and it was quite the lively debate. But yeah, your property manager, and again, in our world, we don't actively manage property. A good friend of mine said, life is too short to manage property. The property manager is the unsung hero in this business, but the folks that do it well, they're going to have a platform. Yeah. And then and then in terms of managing your portfolio, Excel. I mean, it's just pretty simple. You know, you're probably going to have uh, your bookkeeper probably has something in QuickBooks or whatever, and they're going to be keeping track of your money and your P&L and all that stuff, your balance sheet. But just in terms of, you know, keeping track of the other things that you would want to keep track of with your property in terms of what you paid for it or when you might want to cash out some equity or what's it doing, how's it performing. Um, those are simple math equations. We've covered some of that. Uh, and uh, it's not hard to figure out. And I think that the discipline of actually setting the spreadsheet up yourself is important for you understanding what the numbers really mean. I think that's important. I mean, it's great to have a piece of software and just fill in the blanks and have it tell you stuff. But if you don't understand how it got there, I mean, it's not like you have to have a PhD in mathematics to do this. It's pretty simple stuff. Kevin, you also asked about uh, project management and team communications. I think that's different software. There's a, a couple of different things we use in that part of our business. We have a large uh, project management team in our development business, which we hardly ever talk about on the radio. But uh, come out to the Secrets of Successful Syndication event. We've got several practitioners there that use different platforms, and it's, uh, it's a pretty cool evolving area. A lot of the project management software is not real estate specific, but we've had to 
tweak around a few things and there's some stuff we're uh, we're excited about not to the point where I'd say oh this is who I'm using and why but you know software is a tool don't let that drive your business one of the big mistakes we see investors make is they get all caught up in that part of it the logistical tactical part of keeping track of the beans I'm much more interested in how to make sure I'm in the right bean market and I'm bringing in more beans. Yeah, that's huge. When I first started in sales back in the office products business in my early 20s, I would get my commission report. And every month for 13 straight years, I made more money each month than I made the month before. 13 years. It was a great run. And every time I would get it, I would look at it and I would think about analyzing it. And I would literally spend five minutes looking at it and then I'd throw it in the trash can. Because I realized that nothing on that report was going to make me money next month. I needed to go out and just do more business. Maybe I could have done a little bit more fine-tuning, maybe. But I think, Robert, the point that you just made is huge, and I want to embellish it, is that it's really important to stay focused forward and understand what it is you do that makes money. And that's making deals. It's analyzing being in the right markets, serving the right demographic, getting the right properties, and then building your team and working with your team and listening to your team. And that's really where you want to be. The team we talked about, the property managers, the project managers, those people are running everything, you know, simple spreadsheets that just kind of give us a feel for where we're at. And then we just keep moving forward. All right, good stuff. Let's ask the guys today your questions, our answers. We'll get at least one more in before we're done. Stay with us. You're tuned to the Real Estate Guys radio program. I'm your host, Robert Helms. Need help with your real estate investment portfolio? Check out the resources page at realestateguysradio.com. If you love real estate and have always wanted to own your own business, listen up. The Real Estate Guys and their panel of experts want to teach you how to go full-time fast in the real estate syndication business. These next few years may go down in history as one of the best times ever to acquire investment real estate. There are deals everywhere if you know where to look and how to assemble the resources. The Secrets of Successful Syndication Seminar will show you how to make big money doing big deals from a team of experts that have syndicated projects totaling more than $1 billion. Don't wait for someone to give you a raise or create a job for you. Attend the Secrets of Successful Syndication and learn how to build a team, raise capital, find deals, and make full-time money in six months or less. Go to realestateguysradio.com and click on events. All the big players use syndication as a way to diversify risk, optimize profits, and earn big money. You can too. Go to realestateguysradio.com and click on events. Hi, this is Mark Skousen, and you're listening to The Real Estate Guys. And welcome back to The Real Estate Guys radio program. Thanks so much for tuning into the show, especially during this busy holiday season. It's Ask the Guys. Your questions, our answers. This next question actually isn't Ask the Guys as much as it is a Facebook comment, but it's a good one. Chai says, hey, Real Estate Guys, how do small investors with less than 10 properties that are not in an LLC protect themselves with umbrella policies. And what should we look for in umbrella policies? What do we look for in insurance as a landlord? I'm just looking for ways to protect landlords who have Fannie and Freddie back loans. All right, well, uh, the first point is uh, about this, Chai, is that a lot of folks out there, us included, like to talk about the protections that entities like LLCs offer. There's a lot of reasons when it comes to asset protection to hold properties in an entity. Having said that, it is virtually impossible today to get a loan on a property in an LLC. 
So it's this quandary investors face. The lender says, I don't make loans to entities. I make loans to people. Put your name on the loan application to close it in your name. Then could we move it into an LLC? Well, we covered that on the show a few weeks back on lending. You can do that, but you run the due on sales claw risk. So let's just say for the purpose of this question, you're buying property in your own name. Well, if we're saying you should have an LLC to protect yourself, the other way to protect yourself is with insurance. Well, it's not an either or if you can get the LLC, but let's quantify what we're talking about first because we're talking residential one to four. Uh, in the lending world, there's two categories. There's residential one to four, heavily influenced by the government, and he specifically mentions Fannie and Freddie-backed loans. And when the lending world all disappeared, meaning all the private lenders were put out of business during the meltdown, the only lenders left standing were government-backed lending. Fannie, Freddie, FHA, VA. Those are all government-backed loans, and the government is backing loans for people. They're not interested in helping big-shot investors. Now, if you're doing an apartment building, five units and above, that's considered a commercial loan. Commercial lenders are very accustomed to doing business with LLCs, so it's not a problem there. So let's not get confused. But let's assume that we're talking about residential one to four. You're out there. You're collecting little greenhouses. You've got three, four, five of them. You're starting to feel like a mogul. You go to a seminar. You hear an attorney get up there and tell you absolutely have to have an LLC. See, otherwise the world is coming to an end and everybody will take everything you own and you're going to owe body parts and whatever. And you're like, oh my God, I got to get an LLC. And then you go try to get an LLC and then uh, your lender goes, well, you can't do that because we can't make the loan. Well, okay. So you can pay for cash. That's an option. Put it in an LLC. That may or may not be an option. If that's not an option and you have the loan already, you can say, well, I'm going to put the property in an LLC, like you talked about, Robert, and then I'm going to transfer it and just keep making the payments and hope nobody says anything. That's a risk. You can do it. We've known people to do it. Most of the time, those loans don't get called. In fact, I've never heard of a case where they have gotten called. But you have Nor have I, nor has Graham Parham, who was on the show a few weeks ago, has been in the lending business for 17 years. That doesn't mean it's not a risk. It's you just have to know, you know, every day you decide to get up, that's a risk. Every day you decide to get out of bed, that's a risk. Every day you drive a car, that's a risk. Every time you eat, that's a risk, right? There's risk. Insurance is designed to help mitigate risk. So you mentioned specifically umbrella. Most people are familiar with the term umbrella. It's, it, it's a term that usually refers to a residential type of situation. So in other words, I have my auto insurance and I have my homeowner's insurance. And in those, they have liability. So if my dog eats the neighbor or bites the postman or somebody slips on my hose or whatever and I get sued, my liability policies will kick in. If you want even more coverage, you can purchase a supplemental policy called an umbrella policy with much higher limits. And it's really cheap. First thing you have to do is you got to max out your current coverages on your homeowners and on your auto insurance. And then you can put an umbrella over both those things with maybe a million dollars for 100 or 200 bucks a year. Really cheap. The problem with umbrella insurance in that scenario is it doesn't cover businesses. It doesn't cover business activities. And if you're a landlord, your insurance company is probably going to look at your landlording activity as a business and they're not going to cover it. So what you really need to get is called a commercial general liability policy, which is basically a liability policy for a business, a commerce, when you're engaged in commerce, commercial general liability. That's The what business of renting houses. Yeah, so we call it CGL. So that's the first thing you're going to want to do is to get that. And you're going to probably have to go to a business broker to do that. Maybe your homeowner's insurance broker also brokers commercial. If he does, he probably does it as a sidelight. You're probably going to want a specialty broker who does that. You're probably going to want to get a specialty insurance 
lawyer who can help you review those policies and make sure that what you are buying coverage for is actually covered on the policies because a lot of times these companies put in little exclusions and if you don't know what those exclusions look like something you do you think is covered isn't covered another thing that you can do is if you want to get a one single commercial general liability policy that will cover multiple properties is you create an entity to be a management company and that management company then forms a contract with each with you and all of your managing all your properties and you have a liability policy that's owned and covers the activities of that management company so that means now that you have one management company and one management policy over all your properties. And if something happens with any of those properties, you just have to have a connection that the insurance attorney can use to go to your insurance company and say, hey, this company's involved, therefore this insurance policy is triggered. And again, that's where your insurance attorney can help you figure out how to make that connection. And that's gonna be an important part of your uh, strategy. We mentioned earlier employment coverage. Uh, so I won't talk too much about that. And the other thing you need to know is that if you do have a professional property manager involved, some of your insurance protection is actually going to come through their policy. So in the process of hiring your property manager, part of your due diligence is to ask them, are you insured? And it isn't too much to ask them in your property management agreement to state that they're insured and even to show you a copy of the declarations page of their insurance policy that shows you that they have insurance coverage and that it protects you. Now, you may want to take that to your insurance attorney and say, hey, if there's a problem in this property, it, will my property manager's coverage be triggered? And am I protected by that? Or would you recommend I get additional insurance? Attorneys are always going to recommend you get additional insurance because they like as many pockets to go after as possible. So um, again, if it was me, what I would do is I would make sure that the property managers are insured. I would form a management company, get a commercial general liability policy on that, form some agreement between those companies, the property manager and my own management company with each of the individual properties. And you're probably going to have the coverage you're looking for. If you have a question for Ask the Guys, go to our website at realestateguysradio.com. Click Ask the Guys or every six or eight weeks. We love to do Ask the Guys shows, and we've got another one coming up in the new year. Happy holidays to you. Hopefully, you'll have a lot of time to spend with people you care about in the remaining of the year. Next week, we've got a great show for you and a big old 2015 planned. Until next week, go out and make some equity happen. This episode of the Real Estate Guys radio show is brought to you by Paradigm Life. Powerful cash management strategies using life insurance. Learn more at beyourbank.com. Mid South Home Buyers, low cost, turnkey cash flow properties in Memphis, Tennessee. Corporate Direct, asset protection strategies for real estate investors from attorney and rich dad advisor Garrett Sutton. Find these and other great companies under the resources tab at realestateguysradio.com. To learn how you can expose your product or service to the Real Estate Guys audience, call 888-489-7723, extension 4. That's 888-489-7723, extension 4. Or use the feedback page at realestateguysradio.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week right here on the Real Estate Guys Radio Show.